You're listening to Episode 9 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors Dr. Jeffrey A. Johnson on approaching politics, religion, money, like Jesus. The Reverend Alan R. Rudnick asks, what's so good about Good Friday? And the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson on preaching the resurrection of Christ. Dr. Jeffrey A. Johnson is American Baptist Home Mission Society's National Coordinator of Evangelism and New Church Planting. His story, Approaching Politics, Religion, Money, Like Jesus, was first published in The Christian Citizen in March 2018. This week, he contributed this audio submission for the Justice, Mercy, Faith podcast. Three taboos of courteous conversation are politics, religion, and money. Surprisingly, the last week in the earthly life of Jesus, Palm Sunday to Good Friday, included all three, and all three in abundance. Actually, at times, one fed into the other, or one might say that one was in cahoots with the others. Each of the Gospels devotes a large portion of its writings to those seven sequential days in Jesus' earthly life. Obviously, that time period is considered important. It's a third of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 11 through 16, a third of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 21 through 28, a quarter of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 19 through 24, and nearly half of the Gospel of John, chapters 12 through 20. During that week were examples of political domination, religious illegitimacy, and societal exploitation in which the few controlled so much, and sadly, so many. Jesus confronted each several times. No less is this true than Thursday evening to Friday morning when Jesus was shuffled from the residences of Pilate, Caiaphas the high priest, and Herod the provincial king. Even each institutional leader attempted to point out his deficiencies. Jesus made evident their hypocrisies. Speaking politically, as Jesus entered Jerusalem from the east with humility and simplicity on a donkey, Pilate came came into the city from the west on a steed with all the pomp and circumstance his office afforded him. Clearly, there were competing views of kingdom for the Romans, the religious leaders, the crowd, Jesus' own disciples, and for Jesus himself. Jesus made clear the kingdom was so much more and other than what people imagined. A leader asked Jesus if the Jews should pay taxes to Rome. If Jesus had said yes, he would be viewed as a sympathizer to the occupiers. If Jesus said no, he would be seen as an anarchist. His words had to be chosen carefully. He asked for a silver denarius, the coin of taxation. In response to Jesus' request, a religious leader instinctively reached into his robe and pulled out a coin. That one act turned the tables. For you see, no graven images of real persons, mythological deities, nor even animals were permitted within the confines of the temple complex where this dialogue occurred. Jesus asked, whose image is on the coin? People standing around realized what had just happened. Here was an individual trying to incriminate Jesus, but instead incriminated himself by carrying into the temple a coin that depicted the emperor who was seen as a god. Jesus stated that the government is to be respected, but not revered and its leaders definitely not worshipped. 
speaking religiously, according to temporal rules and regulations, a sacrifice that was brought to the city had to be examined over the course of five days to ensure it had neither fault nor flaw. Exodus 12, 5. During this week, Jesus was tested by the religious leaders on a handful of different matters at a handful of different times, examining, if you will, the lamb to ensure perfection without blemish. As mentioned in 1 Peter 1.19, Jesus pointed out that religious leaders had the right beliefs, but sadly, they didn't play out in righteous actions. They had a solid orthodoxy, but a hollow orthopraxy. They said one thing, but did another. We aren't to follow their examples. The money changers exchanged unacceptable coinage at payday loan rates. One of the reasons Jesus chased them out of the temple a second time. The sacrifice sellers marketed animals bearing the system's exclusive stamp of approval, causing exorbitant prices. These individuals took advantage of other individuals who needed to fulfill religious obligations, but now had to do so at marked up percentages. People who were already in debt to sin now were indebted by the system. Jesus' crucifixion was the combination of a week's worth of examples of the corruptness of individuals and institutions. Systems are broken because the people that lead them are broken. It is the reason that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, broken for yourselves and for your systems. Jesus' ultimate and substitutionary sacrifice was to redeem both. Neither could do so on their own. Speaking socioeconomically, Jesus valued the widow that society viewed as a throwaway. Systems are judged by the care they give of the marginalized. The widow gave sacrificially. Jesus acknowledged the worth of her gift, but more importantly, affirmed the worth of her humanity. Here we are 2,000 years later, continuing to reference her. Now that's worth something. Another woman anointed Jesus in the house of a healed leper. Her character was not questioned, but her conduct was. Someone asked the reason that the expensive oil was not sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Maybe instead of giving a check to the poor, we would do better to check in with the poor. Instead of doing ministry to the poor, we should do ministry with the poor as they have something to contribute as well. Just like Jesus did, we should speak into the hypocrisies and injustices of each system. People see them, we should name them. A widow is living in poverty, in the shadow of the gilded temple. How can we justify one out of ten people, half of whom are children, are living in poverty in the most prosperous nation in the world? A woman is seen as a fanatic for Jesus. In a country that calls itself Christian, the only nation on this planet that does so, why are we the third largest unchurched, non-professing Christian nation in the world? A Palm Sunday crowd shouts for a new reality different from the past. Why in a country that claims freedom for all are voices silenced? They are made out to be the enemy. They are vilified. They are crucified. Just as Jesus addressed hypocrisies and injustices in only one week, we should do so now continually. Actually, how else do you think he speaks to such matters today except through us? That one week was seven days 
that changed forever. The Reverend Alan Rudnick is an American Baptist minister, author, and Ph.D. student at LaSalle University of Philadelphia. He is a former member of the Board of Directors for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, Board of General Ministries, and Mission Council of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. He joins this week's podcast to ask, what's so good about Good Friday? Good Friday? How about Bad Friday? Black Friday? Or Depressing Friday? If this is the day in which we remember Jesus' suffering, bleeding, and dying on the cross, what is so good about it? For many Christians, the movie The Passion of the Christ changed the way we think about Christ's suffering. The graphic and bloody movie was a stirring portrayal of Jesus' last hours. For some, Good Friday induces feelings of guilt, depression, and even remorse. Christians on this day truly feel a sense of sadness. On this day of sadness, we wonder, where did we even get the term Good Friday from? There's no clear answer. Some sources reference a German phrase, Gottes Freitag, which means God's Friday. In Anglo languages, the word good and God have been mixed together for the English-speaking world over hundreds of years. For instance, the surname Goodspeed derives from Godspeed, which comes from the expression Godspeed, be with you. The expression goodbye came from the phrase God be with ye or you. Despite the origins of the phrases, we don't really feel good on Good Friday. Are we meant to feel guilty and depressed on Good Friday? We don't feel good about Christ's suffering. Are we meant to feel the pressure to be grateful for Jesus' torment? Many years ago, I was preparing a Good Friday service sermon, and I wrestled with these questions until I came across the words of the director of the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship at Calvin College, John Wivlet. He encourages us to be in touch with this self-awareness and wrestling with this darkness of the day, but sometimes leads down another path of Good Friday. He writes, quote, contrary to rumor, the church's observance of Good Friday, which is often accompanied by a decrescendo of light, is not primarily designed to induce a crescendo of guilt. You and I may have a lot to deal with, and dealing with it may be a very redemptive thing. But make no mistake, we gather on Good Friday not to wallow in guilt, but to announce that sin and guilt have been atoned for, conquered, healed, addressed, dealt with once and for all in heaven and on earth through the blood of the cross. The story is filled with sorrow and shame and agony, indispensably so. But this is no funeral for Jesus. We know how the story turns out, end quote. Being in touch with our emotions and having the self-awareness is the work of the disciple of Jesus. Many individuals in the days leading up to and including the hours of the passion of Jesus are fraught with dealing with their raw stages of grief. Judas experienced denial, saying, surely not I, Lord, in Matthew 26, verse 25. Peter struck a servant's ear with a knife at the arrest of Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 10. 
This was anger. Jesus himself perhaps bordered on bargaining, saying, Father, take this cup away from me. Mary Magdalene no doubt felt depression with the words, Tell me where you have taken my Lord, in John chapter 20. And the final stage of grief, acceptance by Jesus, when he said, Not my will, but yours, Father. In every situation, each individual experienced the work of God's redemption in different ways in the days of Jesus. Some struggled with the reality, others denied their responsibility, and others sought deep sadness. Their experience is our experience. We must embrace these emotional contexts as our own. I've preached many sermons to congregations that we are an Easter people in a Good Friday world. Sit with that for a moment. As an Easter people, we are called into a world full of inequity and prejudice. As an Easter people, we are called into a world of bitterness and pain. As an Easter people, we are called into a world of retribution. Sitting at that moment is the worshipful work of Good Friday. We are not meant to embrace overwhelming guilt on Good Friday, but we are invited to dive into and embrace the transformative power of Jesus on the cross. We read in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. On Good Friday, we do not stand in condemnation, but accept salvation for what God has done for us. God did not want to doom us, but instead free us into an abundant life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 10. On Good Friday, do not be compelled to drown in guilt or remorse, but to declare our solidarity with Jesus. We proclaim our solidarity in Jesus's powerful act of loving and selfless work of freedom from sin. May you, on Good Friday, commune with God and embrace our emotive response for Jesus' sacrifice, but also claim indemnity as sons and daughters of God in the cross. The Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson is pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Endicott, New York. He returns to the podcast this week to discuss preaching the resurrection of Christ. Spring is the time of year when flowers bud, and it seems that nature wakes from the slumber of winter. It is also during spring that we move towards one of the most celebrated events on the Christian calendar, Easter. Spring represents the resurrection of nature coming back to life after a dormant winter. As Easter season dawns, there also emerges the task of preparing a message that is relevant and fresh. This task is filled with expectation as well as tension. The task of proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, however, becomes immensely important, especially when viewing the ills of the world today. Here lies the tension in preaching the resurrection of Christ. I must confess the challenge of preaching the resurrection has at times been difficult. It seemed to me that there were only a few texts that were appropriate for preaching on Easter Sunday. 
I also thought that those who would attend worship on Easter Sunday expected to hear about Jesus getting up, according to the Bible, on the first day of the week. Even after viewing the common lectionary, I kept going back to those same texts. There was something captivating for me about the first day of the week. Unfortunately, I was not open enough to seeing the entire biblical narrative as one symphony that moved towards the resurrection experience. It was not until reading Philippians 3, 1 through 11 that I saw the resurrection experience anew. It was what the Pauline writer shared in verse 10 that rocked my world and changed my perspective, giving me a new hermeneutic of the resurrection. Theologically, I embraced wholeheartedly the resurrection of Christ. Unfortunately, in the early years of ministry, I did not expand it beyond the celebration of Christ rising from the dead on the third day. It it takes an expansive view to see the resurrection as more than a single event that happened on the third day after Jesus's crucifixion. The death of Jesus ushered in the resurrection experience. And preaching this experience has to intimately connect to the lives of the listener. When preaching about the resurrection, it is the death that opens the door to the resurrection of Christ. So when the Pauline writer expounded on the desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering in Philippians 3.10, I was able to see the entire biblical narrative as a resurrection experience. Even the opening of the Bible can be seen as a resurrection experience. God speaking to life, that which was lifeless in Genesis. In the beginning, God spoke. This was the same deity that spoke to Jesus, the same power that resurrected Christ. While biblical exegetes may disagree concerning the textual accuracy of that thought, we cannot disagree that God speaking in the creation narrative gave life to nothing. Is not the resurrection of Christ that very thing? As we move towards the celebration of Easter in a world that is filled with death, darkness, and decay, I believe those who will be attending worship on Easter Sunday want more than just the story about Jesus rising from the dead. There will be those who have heard this narrative countless times, and then there will be those who will be exposed to the resurrection experience for the very first time. It is the preacher who has the arduous task of crafting a message that speaks to those who have heard and those who will be hearing for the first time. There will be a longing to hear how this story can provide fuel for a faith that may be tattered by life's challenges. I no longer expect those who attend on Easter to only want to hear about Jesus rising from the grave. It is my belief that those who will be attending worship on Easter long to hear a word that connects the power of the resurrection to the vicissitudes of their lives. With this in mind, the hermeneutic of the preached word on Easter is vital to fueling the faith of believers. It is also vital to shaping the faith of those who have not committed to any particular faith tradition. As we frame the Easter celebration. Let us look beyond the first day of the week and at the same time look deeper than the first day of the week. It may be important to ask, what was the purpose of the resurrection? Was it simply to announce that heaven is real and those who believe in Christ will go to heaven? 
Could it be that the resurrection of Christ is more expansive than simply going to heaven? Could it be that the resurrection of Christ is the power of God in a world that is hammered to death, filled with loss and frustrated by defeat? Could it be that the resurrection of Christ is broader than one denomination, affiliation, sect, or movement? Perhaps the resurrection of Christ is an opportunity to reveal that there is more to the biblical narrative than a history about a people who rose and fell, struggled and survived only to betray the one who came to show them a more excellent way. As we look towards singing hymns like He Arose, may we be reminded that the entire biblical narrative is bursting with preaching opportunities for Resurrection Sunday. May those who will be preparing a message for Resurrection Sunday be open to the possibility of the resurrection experience seeping through from Genesis to Revelation. May we not be so narrow in our proclamation that we miss an opportunity to help those who will be listening see the possibility of connecting the resurrection of Christ to their lives. Connecting the resurrection of Christ to our lived experience delivers hope. It also provides footing for individuals to step out of their comfort zone and be socially active concerning the conditions of others. There is a need for preaching to expand the resurrection narrative beyond the first day of the week. May I dare say that there is a thirst for a relevant resurrection narrative that speaks not only of Jesus simply getting up on Sunday with all power in his hands. There is a thirst for a resurrection narrative that connects the power of Christ's resurrection to the lives that are falling and fading under the weight of injustice, inequality, suppression, and oppression. As I continue to preach, I'm often reminded of my first year homiletics professor at Virginia Union School of Theology, the Reverend Miles Jones. Dr. Jones hammered in the concept of the authenticity of the preacher. The preacher, he said, has to believe the message before the people in the pews. It has to be relevant and real for the preacher in order for the preacher to convey it effectively to the listeners. And also, it was Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor who effectively communicated Romans 10 and, 9, 10 and 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Proctor noted that within the preacher's quiver are arrows, and the arrows are God's word. These arrows need to be relevant. The resurrection of Christ is an arrow that is both relevant and comprehensive. It should be expanded beyond the first day of the week. These masterful architects of the preached word are deceased. However, they impressed upon me and many of my colleagues the power of the preached word. May we proclaim a relevant and fresh word concerning the resurrection of Christ. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, Dr. Jeffrey A. Johnson, the Reverend Alan Rudnick, and the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on April 23rd. 
To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kagey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.